Welcome to Protect and Grow. I am Tracy Cotton. And I'm Vicki Gibson. Together we host Protect and Grow the podcast. If you're interested in agriculture and curious about insurance, you're in the right place. We can't wait to share our knowledge, experience, and stories with you. Well, we have a special guest with us this week. Russell Morgan of Morgan Ag Consulting has taken the dare and joined us for a visit. <laughs> hey, Tracy, before we get into his big intro, you know me, I, I, I got to do something a little fun. Uh, so let's, let's play the get to know somebody better with a question game. Okay. All right. So my question this week is, as a child, what did you want to be when you grow up? Or grew up, I should say. Of course, for me, it's still growing. So um, I'm not sure. But Tracy, and then we'll hit Russell up. Oh, so you want my answer too? You got to answer too. I wanted to, I actually wanted to be a park ranger. And needless to say, uh, that didn't happen. But I'm making up for lost time now by getting out in the Great Smoky Mountains and other national parks as much as possible. That is it. Russell, what about you? I wanted to fly fighter jets off the uh, decks of aircraft carriers. Top Gun. Wow. Yeah, need for speed. I always did. I was a little bit of a daredevil as a youngster. But anyway, that's enough of that. Uh, yeah, turn and burn, baby. Oh, well, that's funny because I wanted to be an airline stewardess. Oh, no, that's perfect. To the point where I knew the whole thing, you know, I could stand there and do the whole, the exits are located in the back of the plane, the side of the ring, and right in the front. In case of an emergency, the airbags will drop. If you are traveling with a small child, please place your mask on before helping the child next to you. I knew the whole thing. Um, and then life got in the way and I didn't get to go travel the world which I have been told it was not as glamorous as they make it out to be. So maybe it was a good thing for all of us that we probably didn't get our exact wish. Mm -hmm. Think? Absolutely. Well, so Vicki, are you going to tell us a little bit about what to expect today? Sure. Um, well, today, you know, we've been throwing around some different ideas and different topics come up and, this seems like so much has been printed and said recently comparing today's U.S. agricultural environment to the 1980s. Statistics and numbers are thrown around the number of bankruptcies and the farms that are lost. So today we're going to try and put a, a bit more human perspective on how things are different and perhaps how some things are also the same. I am going to say I looked all over for some Aquanut to do the whole 80s hairdo for this to kind of get me in the mood, and I couldn't find any, so I'm a little disappointed. So I'm hoping that Russell, you know, this is just going to be some excitement here because I need it. Well, with that, I have to give the full unadulterated version of Russell's biography so that everybody knows exactly who it is we're talking to today. Russell was born in the mountains of West North Carolina, probably not very far from where I'm sitting right now. He moved to North Middle Tennessee when he was two and was raised there on a dairy, tobacco, beef, and grain farm. He took a circuitous, if you will, educational route 
finally earning his BS in agriculture economics from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. You know, in case y'all don't know, you know, go Vols. He wanted to be a dairy farmer. He, his wife, and toddler son returned to his home dairy farm in May 1982. Ooh, let that sink in, 1982. Bad timing, can we say? But not knowing how deep the ag recession would be, nor how long it would last, he returned to UT Knoxville for his master's degree in agriculture economics. He actually took a job with the University of Kentucky Extension Service as an area specialist in farm management before he completed writing his thesis, which he finished in early 1987. He left the Extension Service in 2003 to start his own business, which is great. Since that time, he has provided clients with ag accounting, income tax reparation management, payroll compliance, and farm business management consulting services. He's a longtime member of the American Society of Agriculture Consultants. I didn't know that was a thing, but, and he's now the, the current CFO. He is also a member of the Farm Financial Standards Council. Okay, Tracy. So what, what I think I'm hearing now is that Russell's a hillbilly by birth, <laughs> a dairy and tobacco farmer by raisin, and an ag economic, oh, but the word didn't even come out of my mouth there, an ag economist by training. So Russell, what exactly does that make you? What do you consider yourself? Confused. <laughs> That's the story uh, of my life. <laughs> well, I, I think that the, the uh -huh. upbringing and the experience, it, it taught me uh, uh, self-reliance. And, and if you're raised on a dairy and tobacco farm, you cannot, be, have, you cannot have an aversion to hard work. Uh, the ag econ training, it taught me to uh, think analytically, and I think it provided, uh, uh, well, assistance in uh, training in uh, critical thinking. Uh, and that, the, that combination, that conglomeration of experience and training has uh, helped me quite a bit in, in the uh, work the, that I've chosen, the career path that I've chosen. Uh, I like to think of myself as a problem solver. Uh, because heaven knows a lot of things, a lot of times, the uh, situations that I'm dealing with are uh, some type of problems and we have to work out solutions. Uh, I certainly, uh, certainly try to be a problem solver anyway. Well, that's really one of the reasons why we wanted to bring you on, but we are definitely going to dig in and utilize a lot of that. In fact, this is my question to you, Russell. You grew up on a farm, studied agriculture in college, and have been working with farmers since the mid-1980s. What are the most significant change or changes that you've seen in agriculture during that time? Just take us back. Well, uh, the first uh, and probably the foremost uh, would be technology. Of course, that's, that should not come as any surprise. I mean, we just think about the world in general, uh, not 1985 to 1989 versus now. Uh, there's been rapid advances in technology, obviously. It's, it's, it's changed in every business, in our individual lives, for that matter. But, uh, but certainly, it has been very, very pronounced in agriculture. Some of my uh, non-ag friends that uh, I visit with and talk with and, and relate with, uh, they cannot believe. They have not a clue on what the, uh, how much technology is utilized and uh, in current, in today's agriculture, they just, they just cannot believe it. But anyway, when I started in a, 
back in 1985, GPS, as I recall, had only been released to the public by the, it was owned or whatever controlled, probably a better term, by the military uh, for just a couple of years. I think it was 1983 when they released it, but what they, they didn't give a full release back then. It was just, oh, I call it a fuzzy one, that they didn't want it to be too exact because they were concerned. And remember, we were in the middle of the uh, Cold War, Russians, USSR, and whatever. They did not want it to be too accurate because they were concerned about missiles and what have you. So it took a while before they actually totally released that thing uh, so that we have the uh, the GPS, the, the accuracy uh, capabilities we have today. So anyway, that was uh, one of the uh, one important technological uh, change. Uh, back then, autonomous tractors, they, they were just a far-fetched dream, you know, uh, mm-hmm. science fiction, if you will. All those monitors that you see in tractors and combines, you know, on ag Twitter, the, the guys and gals in their in their cabs, you know, look like a, uh, uh, I used to say like an aircraft, I mean, a, a, a airplane panel. Those yeah. things, nada, uh, you know, nothing. In fact, I think the first real, uh, I'll call it real time, and I believe the correct terminology is on the go yield monitor, probably wasn't developed until I believe it was 1993. I could be off a year or so, but I know it was early 1990s for sure. So prior to that, no yield monitors. You just you just went, and, you know, uh, cut the corn, cut the wheat, beans, whatever, and you you looked at it in a whole field. You did math. You, you did the old Jethro ciphering by hand. You know, uh, so it's that is a significant, significant difference. You know, you can see what's going on on real time now, as opposed to, you know, you were uh, you know, not exactly flying blind because obviously the operator can look ahead and see what kind of crop he's in. But but certainly it was a guess. And so now we have real time data um, in, in livestock. I mean, uh, I think the, the transponders that, that dairy cat uh, for dairy cattle didn't come into play. It didn't come into being, I think the early eighties, because when I was in graduate school, it seems like I remembered uh, reading about, as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to be a dairy farmer. So those type of things I tried to read up on, uh, when they, uh, that technology came into, uh, uh, into being into vogue, but those things didn't come around till, uh, you know, early 80s, and they were just being tested then, as I recall. And, and even those, um, uh, they were very simplistic. All they did were you could program them so that the, the particular animal would know uh, you could feed her a certain amount of concentrate, which is the grain part of the, for, of the, of the, um, of the ration, not the, not the silage or the hay or whatever, but the grain part, based on her stage of lactation and and, uh, you know, how much milk she produced. Um, so that was is very simplistic compared to what we see today. In fact, uh, the dairy farmers I worked with, uh, and there were, several, there were a few of them, uh, there were a few around at that time in the late uh, 80s. None of them used transponders at that time. I think I had a couple that actually uh, started using them in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. But now today we have uh, you can get an alert on your hand, on your uh, smartphone when Bessie isn't as active as she should be and get, alerts you that she may not be well. And it tells you exactly where the gal is in the farm or in the barn. So it's just amazing the technology that's available uh, today compared to then uh, in, in livestock production as well. And that's just the, the mechanical technology, not, not to say anything about uh, the biological technology, the g- gene, uh, 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 you know, uh, not editing, but, but certainly the genetic uh, improvement that is, has occurred. Um, I've watched over that time the development and advent of GMOs, CRISPR technology, a multitude 
uh, of seed, fertilizer, chemical uh, technological developments. It's just, you know, comparing this time or today to then, it's to say it's night and day is not even close. It's it's not even the same zip code or almost on a different planet, if you will. Uh, the advances that that, that have happened, uh, we've had technological advances in the various livestock sectors, feeding, breeding, management, and so on. Uh, it's been just amazing. Um, and these are just a few examples. I mean, really, you could talk for a long time just on that. But I, I just wanted to uh, give a few examples to to note that how much uh, production agriculture or the technology uh, you utilize, used and utilized in product, production technology is vastly enhanced today versus then. That didn't even talk about things like cell phones, internet, and generalized technical uh, technological advances, satellite uh, uh, information that we use not just in ag, but, you know, other businesses in our everyday life. Um, that other thing that I've witnessed, uh, I've seen a big change is in the demographics of the ag industry. It has changed greatly. And we'll probably notice it most in the livestock industry. There's been a significant trend to uh, uh, larger, more concentrated uh, production centers. Um, as an example, I worked with uh, several dairy farms I mentioned earlier when I started in 1985. And I think now in the eight county area of, of the purchase, eight county purchase area of Kentucky, which was my area to work as, a, as an area specialist farm management, I think there's one still left. And what? there were probably, I don't know, 50 or better, you know, mm -hmm. at the time. Um, and so, so that's, that's a big change. Um, and let's see. Uh, well, of course, now you have the traditional dairy production areas. You got Wisconsin still in northeast parts of the uh, southeast are still uh, produce a fair amount of, of, of milk. And, but but you've seen an increase in the southwest. And of course, California has been there for a while, but they've increased their production. But the southwest, yep. Texas, whatever. So anyway, it's moved around the production areas, and they become quite larger, as we you know probably most everybody knows. But um, uh, so that, that's a change. Also, I mean, just while on the same topic, uh, the Farrell to finish hog operations, they disappeared in my region. Um, we used to have a several, and now I think we, we don't have any independent. Uh, well, there's one large firm. I'll get to that in a second. Any independent Farrell to finish operator uh, uh, farmers in my area. We did see some hogs come back into the area because we have this large firm down in northwest Tennessee that contracts with uh, farmers to grow pigs for them. Sort of like the, the big poultry uh, firms do the inter vertical integration. OK, they do that. They do some of that. And we've seen some more of that across the country as well. But but I've seen that uh, in, in hogs. Uh, and certainly there are throughout the country, there's some, they are independent hog producers, but they're large. I don't see any more of the 400 sow, 200 sow, feral to finish operations. Those guys and gals are gone, are pretty much gone. Not, not totally, but pretty much. Instead, you'll have 2,400 at a, a you know, installation. That's probably kind of a minimal uh, size. And so, uh, so it's really changed quite a bit in that regard, the demographics, if you will, from the production standpoint. Uh, poultry production, same thing. You know, concentration areas have changed. When I started working with, in Kentucky Extension, I don't know that there was one poultry integrator in Kentucky, you know, like a, um, a Tyson or a Pilgrim's Pride or, or uh, Cable. 
But they, the first one came in in my area, uh, right out my back door here in far western Kentucky. I think it was 1990, 89, 90. In fact, I helped work with uh, some of the contract producers on loan packages, you know, doing cash flow projections, financial, economic analysis, whatever, so they can get their loan to, to build the, the barns to be a contract producer. And I think uh, the one in our back door is probably one of the first, if not the first one in far western Kentucky. And just as for comparison, at, uh, I think in 1990, I read that the, ag- that the uh, poultry in Kentucky produced or contributed to 1% of the total Kentucky ag receipts, 1990. Now it's up around 20%. That's oh, wow. a significant difference. <laughs> you know, that is a, that's a big jump. Even, if, even though it's over a large period of time, that's a lot of dollars, you know, being contributed. Um, and, you know, that's just a partial listing of changes. And, and I, I won't even touch in changing the size and complexity of farm business. My gosh, you know, we know that farmers have gotten big, larger. They're more complex. They're diversified. Some of them inside agriculture, some of them out. We have trucking companies. We've got uh, folks operating as grain elevators, uh, 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 commodity brokers and all that type of thing. But it gives you an idea. Uh, of the expansiveness of the changes or expanse of changes that, that have witnessed from that time to now. Uh, another thing, oh, I'm sorry, has your question? I was going to, I just, I'm going to jump right in here because you were talking yeah. about, you know, everybody, all the businesses are getting larger. Um, mm-hmm. Dairies are getting larger. You know, you're seeing the growth in uh, turkey houses, chicken houses. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that rolls back to that farm family. You know, mm-hmm. and so yeah. I, I just want to talk about that or ask you about the difference that you've seen there, because we hear that word being thrown out there, factory farms, factory farms. And right. those of us that's been around ag remind people that that factory farm really comes all the way down to a family. There, there's right. a family there. It's turned into a corporation because it's just grown and there's multiple people in the family that's right. part of that farm. So, you know, in your time since the 80s, uh, you know, what differences are you seeing? I mean, what's the difference today than when you started well, with farm and farm families? Well, I think what, what, you, what we've seen uh, back when I, I first started is that, uh, you know, the, the farm or the farm itself was basically one family. When I say one family, one family unit. I mean, you know, a family obviously can be extended, but, but a husband, wife you know, kids, you know, just that's that. Now, what I saw happen over time as those, uh, as some of the boys and girls grew and wanted to come back to the farm, uh, a lot of time they would form partnerships, LLCs, and in some cases, corporations. I, I have a real aversion to the term corporate farming, but anyway, that's, that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> um, but, but, and what they've done, they've, they've organized so that they can bring those children back in, or maybe bring in a brother. I've, I've had two brothers that decided that they could be more efficient if they joined forces and, uh, you know, buy equipment cheaper, buy larger equipment, share the equipment, you know, those type of things. So there are various uh, if, uh, technical and economic efficiencies that can be gained by uh, coming together and having a, a larger organization, but still family. And I've, I worked with one uh, company of, of, of two uh, different farms, but they actually farmed together. And so they were farming around 15,000 acres, but they were buying equipment in bulk, buying their products in bulk. And they had a trucking firm in, uh, that they could uh, 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 truck their, their, their crops. And so they weren't 
necessarily a an organ, you know, legally organized business, but they farm together. But that's two families. It's still a family farm. Mm-hmm. Family farm of fifteen thousand acres. That's you know that defies what folks think about, you know, when they think about family farming, a uh, family farms. But it is a family farm. It absolutely mm-hmm. is. Oh, I agree with you one hundred percent. I think it's a, it's it's important for us to keep that reminder out there that you know just because you look out there and it's a a huge tractor for somebody who's not familiar with them and large pieces mm-hmm. of equipment and they realize, Oh, I saw that same farmer in that field and that field and here, you know, mm-hmm. he, he's still a family. He, he's still part of that family farm. You know, it, this, right. like you said that try not to use that corporate farm word there, but um, right. it's always good for us to remind people that there there's a face and a family behind what you're seeing out there going on in ag today. Right. It's not some, some uh, New York investor or some uh, doctor, lawyer, somewhere far off uh, that, that are just investors in this organization. No, you're exactly right. It is. They're there on the farm working it. New York city. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that just makes me I, re- I know the commercial you're referring to. That's right. Um, <laughs> uh, the other thing that, uh, and this is fairly important, is that we've seen the government programs and policies, they have changed, undulated, if you will, over time. And they've had a tremendous impact on the industry. Some good, eh, I would argue occasionally not so good, but, but that's, that's an arguable point. Um, and really, there are too many to mention other than just to mention that they have had an impact on the, uh, the structure, on the livelihood, on uh, income levels, as well as, uh, you know, uh, anytime you, you impact uh, income levels, you're going to impact the demographics if it happens over a long enough period of time. So the government programs and policies certainly have had uh, impact. Uh, one, I, I'll just mention, and it was kind of is interesting because it defy hours. I turned out to be wrong in my um, estimation on the uh, result of it would be when the tobacco program was eliminated. That was back in, I think, 2005. But anyway, they, they eliminated the tobacco support program and basically turned it open to uh, instead of having quotas and what have you by the farmers having different quotas. It was just whoever wants to grow it can grow it. You're on your own. And I really thought that uh, well, far western Kentucky because it had flatter land and we had farmers that can you know, grow larger uh, acreages of burly tobacco, if you will. I thought it moved this way. It did not. It moved back toward the hills of central Kentucky, the guys and gals that already were doing a better job of it anyway, they, uh, since they had a competitive advantage of knowledge and ability, uh, they, they, uh, the, the production actually gravitated toward there. And we have a whole, a very little burly tobacco in my back door in western, far western Kentucky, which was kind of interesting. So it did change the production demographics in tobacco states like Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina there, uh, Carolina. Tracy, yeah. Virginia. Houston, yeah, I was uh, just, you know, I've I witnessed that a good bit there in Virginia. Um, also, yeah. during that time, there was also, you know, the the peanut buyout. There was mm-hmm. peanut production. It was really funny to see family farms or people I knew in South Carolina farming that stopped growing tobacco, started growing peanuts, and people in Virginia that were growing peanuts started growing tobacco. So it was kind of interesting to see a yeah. flip-flop of some demographics, mm-hmm. like you said. Right. Right. And it, it definitely you know, also- Carolina for sure. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. one of the things. I mean, it's it's almost non-existent in Western North Carolina because of it. 
Right. Right. And, and, and when my dad moved boss. away from there, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say when my dad moved, uh, when we moved away from North Carolina, there was a fair amount of uh, burley production in those hills. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, there was. Um, so yeah, I can I, I can see where that would have changed. Uh, they also had USDA programs. You've got EPA. You know the water issues, trade, yep. which is always an issue and always has been an issue. Uh, in fact, that pa- caused uh, the, the trade issue caused a lot of the uh, was a significant player in the agricultural recession, depression, if you will, of the 80s. But we won't get into the 1980 embargo and all that. But anyway, trade has always been an issue, more so now because U.S. ag relies more on trade than we did back then. You know, And I think that that's uh, one that we wanted to talk about, I know, is that, you know, there was definitely you know, a financial crisis in, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. But people are talking about it like it's back again. I mean, like, yeah. what's your take on that? Okay. Well, I I have a different take than what you'll see in the written articles. Uh, they're trying to compare the uh, uh, and throwing statistics out there, you know, the the bankruptcies and what have you, how it compares to back then. But my take on it's different. Uh, number one, well, first of all, I, I read those articles and read you know most of the statistics, but uh, the stats never and numbers, they don't ever tell the full story. Um, and in this case, uh, for a few reasons, uh, the, the st- stats presented typically are, fam- are farm bankruptcies now versus the 1980s. But what they don't tell you is that uh, the, the rules and the sizes of the opera or the farms that uh, the that are affected by are different. Uh, and remember, statistics are just indicators of the financial situation versus uh, versus now versus them. And I would submit that they're poor indicators, but they're not all one side. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, well, first of all, just a real quick preface without getting folks glassy eyed about uh, uh, some of these uh, bankruptcy rules. Uh, essentially, uh, you, you've got uh, bankruptcy chapters that affect different types of businesses. Chapter 12 is oriented specifically and exclusively for farms. Chapter 11 is for non-farms. And both of those are reorganization bankruptcy. The idea is for the company to continue business after they finish the bankruptcy time period. Both of those. Chapter 7 is, an, well, I call it an organized liquidation. You know, you, you aren't going to continue farming after that. Uh, then chapter 13 is personal, so we won't even touch that. But uh, the, the rules for chapter 12 and uh, 12 did change. And uh, the last few years, because of the old rules, there was probably some larger farmers and some more complex farmers, farmers that had maybe had a grain elevator, had some uh, uh, elevator uh, business, some other things that wouldn't fit under Chapter 12. So those numbers may not tell you the full story of what farms or how many farms actually engaged or uh, uh, filed for Chapter 12, whereas back in the day, the Chapter 12, they were you know, they covered most of the farms that were eligible for bankruptcy at the time. However, back in the 1980s, uh, I don't know if you guys and gals remember this, but it was Farmers Home Administration. It was FMHA. It's a precursor to Farm Service Agency today, FSA. Now, Farm F- FMHA was the lending branch of USDA back then, and they had in their uh, their own, what I termed an in-house Chapter 12. And remember, this is 1980s. We had a bunch of farmers that became lenders or borrowers 
from FMHA because of the farm financial crisis. They had a bunch of borrowers back then. Okay. And so they had in their own rules, what I term an in-house chapter 12. And basically the same thing could happen. And I worked with some clients and we worked through this, uh, get the same results as a chapter 12, the debt write down, reorder, whatever, and stretching out loan payments, this type of thing without the cost of having to file and, and maybe not even having to have a, uh, an attorney involved, uh, this type of thing. So those numbers are not reflected in those cha- uh, bankruptcy numbers at that time. So you really aren't comparing apples to apples for several reasons. Gotcha. And let's see. Well, oh, another significant difference is land values today have held up much greater than they did back then. In the late 80s, I mean, I saw land value from the time that I signed on as an area specialist to, to 1989. I saw land values drop by 50 percent in some places. And the problem with that is that back in the da- that day, the bankers lenders were what I would term more balance sheet lending. They didn't look at cash flow uh, repayment capacity as much as they do now, which they should have been doing. But they didn't. They looked at your equity. If you had negative equity you probably weren't going to get your operating loan, even though you could cash flow. I ran in that situation on more on uh, several occasions where the farm was actually making money. But the thing is, is because his land values dropped, you know, the uh, fair market value of the land dropped mm-hmm. such a great deal. He, he was quote underwater on the balance sheet. And so he couldn't get an operating loan. So he had to either liquidate or change or partially liquidate, even though he should never have had to. Wow. Those great. situations were tough. They were tough to deal with. So is it easier now? I mean, is that a, a good change? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Well, I think, yeah, the, the lending uh, uh, emphasis is more on debt repayment. Well, I mean, uh, equity obviously is important, but but they also look, they put more emphasis, maybe that's a better way of saying it, more emphasis, uh, as they should, on debt repayment capacity and uh, cash flow capacity and this type of thing. So if sometimes if a, a, a farmer maybe has a, is a little tighter on equity, if they have if they can show the debt repayment capacity, they have a lot better chance of you know, renewing that operating loan, doing whatever they need to do, debt restructuring, uh, whatever can be done to help them. You know, uh, keep in business and, and hopefully with things uh, until things turn a little better, if you will. So, yeah, the situation is much better now. The opportunity exists today. And I've worked with some farmers in the last few years. I actually promoted uh, them to do this before things got tighter and maybe the bankers would be less industry uh, lenders would be less interested in doing this to go ahead and restructure some loans, spread out some, uh, use, use the equity they have in, in land to spread out their, their loans. Uh, even though they, they could cash flow at where they were, but let's just, you know, let's give yourself a little bit of breathing room room. Cause you can always pay the darn thing off early. Right. You know, mm-hmm. but, but if you t- t- times get tight, uh, you may not be able to go into the bank and say, Hey, I need to stretch this 10 year loan over 20. They may not be willing to do that. So you can do it. You'd be proactive. Yeah, I've heard people talk about how in the 80s, if you were a farmer, that your farm was built mostly on rented land, you you had it really rough. You you didn't have that um, that security of having land to be able to go 
get some operating expenses from your bank. And so I've, I've been told, like I said, many times that at least now when you go into the bank, they are looking at your whole picture. So it seems like it's a little bit more of a fair game out there, so to speak, when you go into a bank these days and try to get some operating expenses. I think I, I believe for a couple of re or a variety of reasons, the, uh, the lending uh, environment, if you will, landscape is, is better for farm businesses today than they were. And well, number one, they've got more competition. I mean, you know, there, there are alternative uh, types of, of lending out uh, available today that weren't, uh, weren't even a concept back in the 1980s. Basically, you had uh, uh, with the ag credit, which we had, we call them production credit, farm, uh, federal land bank or uh, farmer's home or your traditional you know, local bank. Those are your options. Now you have many more, many more options than that. So that helps. It does. Well, so we have to ask because, you know, Vicki and I were in the insurance industry and we mm -hmm. focus on risk management with our farm clients. That's something that we just do for our farm clients. But Russell, what are your what are you seeing with farmers attitudes towards risk management that might be different now versus back in the 80s? Well, I think that uh, farmers today, I think they're much more cognizant of risk management in the areas uh, that it's, I, I call the term manageable. Um, and really, if we think about it, and this, uh, there are risks everywhere, right? I mean, uh, you know, if y'all would know that better than, than most folks, I mean, even, and this is an, op I use this obscure example just to make a point, uh, there's a risk in getting out of bed in the morning. You could twist and fall and hurt, turn your ankle. Now, that probability is infinitesimally small, hence you quote what I call self-insure. I mean, you know, you take your chances, you don't do anything formal about it, but there are risks. And, and the risk in every, uh, you know, all around us each day, some of them um, uh, you, can, you can look at and uh, uh, identify and somewhat quantify, and you can uh, take formal uh, insurance, formal risk management uh, steps. Some of them are not, of course. Uh, you know, in, in agriculture, we have uh, weather risk, price, market risk, physical damage risk, legal liability risk, someone coming on your property and, you know, falling in and, you know, you get into a lawsuit, this type of thing. Income interruption risk, health injury risk, accident, accidental death risk. And it's not an all-inclusive list, but that's, that's um, uh, uh, some of the areas that, that, hey, we have to deal with each day in some form or fashion. And so in my experience, working with farmers in the uh, mid to late 80s, they didn't look at risk management as comprehensively as farmers do now. And well, I submit that farmers now don't look at it as comprehensively enough, but certainly uh, they do a better, much better job, in my opinion, than what I witnessed and what I, the folks, the guys and gals I worked with back in the 80s. And I, I would say that, that today's farmers would be well, well advised to periodically, I mean, it's not some, because they've got a whole bunch of stuff on their plate. It's not something you think about every day, but, but periodically, maybe you look at their entire risk management plan for the business and family business as well obviously. Uh, and I, I would maintain that a, a, a comprehensive and, you know, extensive, somewhat extensive list of risk areas should be written down. If nothing else, I mean, some of them you're not going to do anything formal about, but just to visualize, just be, make your, just be aware, okay, those things exist. And I, I think it's helpful, uh, in my opinion, uh, from, the, uh, from the manager's uh, uh, perspective, if you will, or, or management uh, 
uh, thinking and, and decision making. And, and, you know, and as I said, some areas, you know, they're best formally insured. You know, you've got the risk factor and the consequences are great enough that you that you engage, you take out a commercial insurance policy. It's warranted and needed and, and, and so, well, yeah, certainly needed. And, and, and then you have some areas that are uh, their best informally insured. You know, maybe develop a, a, a SOPs or, or, or practices like dairy herd health practices. You don't consider that necessarily insurance, but it is really. It's you take these practices or these standard operating procedures, you get them in place to prevent or to manage to uh, help mitigate you know uh, types of risk. It is an insurance of some uh, some type. We just don't formally call it risk management, but it is. I mean, uh, insurance, but it is risk management. And so, uh, so, you know, those things are, are adequate in those cases, um, you know, and just remember that every practice, whether it's formal or informal, it incurs an economic cost, even if it's not out of pocket, like paying for the, you know, for the physical damage uh, or, or umbrella insurance policy, uh, the standard operating procedure, the health the herd health practice, you're going to you do something and it costs you something to do it. Maybe if it's just time, but it is an economic cost. So, so there is a management decision in that, in doing that, even if it's, like I said, even if it's not out of pocket. And of course you have other areas that contain risks so remote or the consequences are so small that management basically just chooses to, to do no formal or, you know, take no formal insurance action. But as I, I will finish with this, you know, the decision to do nothing is a decision as well. So that's all part of the management decision-making model, if you will, of the, of the farm business. You know, I'm just going to add to kind of what you were saying about certain practices you can do that it's not necessarily taking out an insurance policy, but you're trying to take care of the risk. Because as agents, we start asking a lot of questions because we know when a client comes and they do want coverage for something, we have to answer to our underwriters who want to know what do they have in place? Do they have an accident management plan already set up? What are they mm -hmm. doing? How are they doing it? Um, and if we can go back to our underwriters and say they're already doing these practices, it definitely helps in getting somebody coverage. Yep. Uh, so, you know, it's important to not just think about those management practices in your head, but to make sure that you, you've sat down at some point and have it on paper and make sure that, you know, your employees, whether it's your family members or whomever they are, make sure that they understand what you want them to do in case something does happen. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's also kind of helps you in the liability issue as well, yep. because you've stated this is how we handle things. I've taught my employees how to handle it. And, you know, you mm -hmm. can go from there. But I, I agree with you. There's a lot of things, um, too many risks on the farm to just take them all lightly. So by right. sitting down, thinking them out, writing them down and making sure everybody knows what to do, um, it's important. Also, I've seen things where somebody brings somebody new onto a farm. They're not from that area at all. They don't know who to call for what, um, and something happens, and they just kind of stand there at a loss when, what do I do? So it's always important, too, to make sure that all your employees have contact phone numbers of who to call in case something does happen, not just 911, but who else do they need to call? And to me, that's part of your risk management as well. 
Um, my next, I'm going to ask another little question, Russell. Do you think that insurance companies are doing a good job keeping up with the changes in agriculture? For instance, I know we've, you know, the company I'm working for, uh, we've come up with some pollution management coverage and, um, you know, there's, it's, I feel like we're keeping up, but it's always nice to hear from somebody else. I think that they're, they're doing a, a good job. Of course, the thing is, uh, you know, things change so darn quickly in mm-hmm. every business, but certainly we're seeing bunches of changes in, in ag. Well, you know, we get EPA rules. Well, what is this water of the world? What is it? Then they come back. Oh, it's this and you know, all kinds of lawsuits. So it's difficult to keep up. I, I recognize that. And by and large, I think the insurance companies are, are well, you know, they have an incentive. They're incentivized to keep up with, um, you know, the changes that, that are occurring in, in the ag industry, the ag uh, uh, landscape. So I think by and large, I think so. Uh, but, but I was going to come back to say one thing, uh, um, something you said earlier, Vicki, is that I can see a, a significant uh, uh, value uh, when, when in y'all's situa- or, or position, if you would, to kind of plant a seed. Say, have you thought about this? You know that, and that, and your your client mm-hmm. may not respond immediately, but sometimes, sometimes, you know, uh, uh, the, your job is similar to not uh, maybe a, an annual grain uh, production, but it may be more like a Christmas tree. You may take a while before you harvest that tree. So <laughs> I do that. I find myself doing that quite often with folks because part of what I do is, you know. I, I sit down with a, a, a client, let's just say a new client, and I try to, to uh, it's not a judging, that's the wrong term, it's, you know, basically getting to understand what makes this person tick, because that's really what economics is about anyway. Foundation is what makes us tick. And so I try to understand what is important to this guy or gal, and then uh, if I see something that might, they should think about, maybe I'll plant a seed, come back to it, come back. It may be a while before that comes to fruition. I can see the same thing happen in, in y'all's uh, uh, jobs. It's oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely is. Well, I know we're just about out of time. We've covered a lot of bases. And I think that for our listeners who have, you know, already spent this much time with, with, listening to what you had to say, Russell, that there's probably a lot more that they could gain from getting a chance to talk to you and and perhaps even working with you. I would like to make sure that they know how to reach you. What's the best way for them to get to know Russell Morgan? Well, um, probably is uh, they can find my my website, which is morganagconsulting.com. And it has my contact information and more information about me and what I do and what uh, experience and um uh, capabilities that, that I, I have. And if any of those uh, are, they feel is, is uh, useful, then certainly give me a contact via email. Uh, a cell phone number is, is on the website as well. That's fantastic. And what we'll do is we'll go ahead and put that information about the website and your cell phone number in the show notes on the podcast so that wherever they're listening, they can go back out there and look at those and they can find you I know that I'm glad that I found you. It's been fantastic. It's been something that's been really meaningful to me to have gotten to know you through Ag Twitter and following all your posts as a, you know, as somebody who wants to help advise my clients, the information you put out is just fantastic and really, really appreciate you coming and spending time with us so much. Oh, it's fantastic. 
It's been a pleasure, especially as our first guest. That that's a big thing. Um, I'm just wow. gonna ask, I'm gonna ask a real a, a question real quick because when we started talking and you brought up talking about the '80s, I tried to look for some information about the '80s, and I'm I'm gonna leave with this. First of all, I wanted to know how much a bottle of whiskey was in the '80s compared to how much a bottle of whiskey is now. For some reason, oh I couldn't find that. But I did find out a six-pack of beer in 1985, they say, averaged $4.30. And then now they say the average six-pack is $8.58. I think some people drink a lot of expensive beer because I'm thinking a six-pack of Bud Light's a little bit less than that. But my question is, you're over there in Kentucky, and my daddy was from Southwest Virginia, so I know all about that Appalachian moonshine running around places. <laughs> um, it, you know, what, what's the price difference? Do you know? Uh, I really can't say. Uh, I will say this, <laughs> that the, uh, uh, from personal experience, uh, I sheepishly admit this, uh, <laughs> the moonshine that was uh, a group of us, FF, well, maybe I shouldn't say, I won't say that, that was uh, in, in Pringe upon, or no, whatever, impinge the uh, uh, FFA. But anyway, uh, some of uh, my fellow farm buddies and I, we, t- we partook of some uh, moonshine back in, oh, about 1975, six. And uh, let's just say the quality today that you can purchase legally is much, much better. <laughs> I will agree with you. I will absolutely agree with you. Really appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Thank you. I very much appreciate the opportunity. Thank you all. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us for Protect and Grow the Podcast. As always, we appreciate you sharing your time with us. Before we go, we want to ask you all to show us some love. Follow us on Twitter. Tell your friends and colleagues about us. Most importantly, subscribe to Protect and Grow. And don't miss the next episode. And now for me to give you about a little bit of information about the legal stuff. Uh, this is just a personal podcast. Any views or opinions in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the host and do not represent those people, institutions, organizations, or businesses that the host may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. <laughs>